0: Spy Talk,
1: a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations with Jeff Stein and Gene Meserve. Hi, I'm Gene Meserve, and welcome to another episode of Spy Talk.
2: I'm John Dingus. I'm a member of the Spy Talk team, and I'll be sitting in for Spy Talk editor in chief Jeff Stein today. His interview this week goes deep into one of the toughest tasks in the espionage trade, counterintelligence. He talks to former CIA counterintelligence chief James Olson, who has written a revealing book about U.S. efforts, sometimes faltering efforts, to neutralize enemy spies. Olson warns that China's spy services in particular are overwhelming U.S. defenses. His recommendation more double agent operations to stop them. We'll get back to that later in the show.
1: John, great to have you with me. Our evil, the Russian-based ransomware gang, has been shutting down businesses around the world by holding their data hostage. Those businesses pay millions upon millions to get it back. President Biden told President Putin to shut them down when they met in Geneva and he delivered that message again after a massive ransomware attack over the July 4th weekend. The United States
0: expects when ransomware operations coming from his soil, we it's not, not sponsored by the state. We expect them to act.
1: Well, now our evil has gone offline. Did the Russians take them down? Was it a clandestine American operation? Or had the situation gotten so hot that R evil decided to close up shop until things cooled down? There wasn't an answer at the time of our taping. But we talked to Chris Painter, president of the board of the Global Forum on Cyber Expertise Foundation. He has worked on cyber issues for more than 25 years at the National Security Council and the Departments of Justice and State. We asked him first what he knew about this gang, R Evil.
3: Well, it's, it's a ransomware gang, a uh, group. Uh, and there are many of these, many different groups that operate. In part, they they provide services to others so that others can do ransomware. They, they provide ransomware as a service, essentially. In part, they actually do some of the ransomware themselves.
1: What is their connection to the Russian government? Well, that that's unclear. Uh, we've had
3: testimony uh, back a few weeks ago by the head of the FBI saying that there were certainly connections between these ransomware groups and the Russian government. We've had, though, the White House say now repeatedly that we have no evidence that these ransomware attacks that we've seen recently are tied directly to the Russian government. Now, of course, that doesn't mean the Russian government is not turning a blind eye uh, to these activities or letting these these, uh, actors act with impunity, but they don't see a direct tie. Now, traditionally, there are cases where there's a direct tie where the Kremlin is actually directing their activities. There are other cases where um, there is corruption involved. I've been involved in dealing with cybercrime for many, many years before I was a diplomat, as a prosecutor, and also running the G8 when it was a G8, the G7 high-tech crime group. And this has always been an issue with Russia is getting cooperation on cybercrime cases. So, so in some sense. Even if they're not being backed by the Russian government, the fact the Russian government's not doing something about them still causes the problem, and that's in fact what's been brought up by President Biden recently.
1: Could the Russian government do something about it if it wanted to?
3: I think they could. I mean, look, you know, the Russian uh, intelligence services and law enforcement services are certainly very good and very capable. Uh, these actors are acting, as I said, with impunity and not really keeping their heads down. Uh, We've heard Putin say that, well, you know, we need more information from the U.S. Well, to a point, but, you know, just like if these uh, these groups operated in our country, I think we could probably track them down. There's a lot of evidence already out there that's really apparent already publicly that I think the, uh, uh, you know, Putin's agencies could do this. Um, So, yes. And then certainly, I think, especially in Russia, uh, Putin can make these uh, groups lives pretty miserable, even if they don't lock them up, which is one aspect they can certainly keep them from operating or making it much harder for them to operate.
1: Do we know who the individuals are who make up this group? Are they former intelligence? Are they former military?
3: I, I don't know for sure. I think you know there's likely going to be a mix of different folks involved, but there's also very uh, adept criminals in Russia. And there have been some t- for some time that have very good technical capability. And as I said, even when you're doing these ransomware service operations, um, you don't need good technical capability because you're using tools that are provided to you by others that provide those tools. So, so I don't know for sure what the background of these actors are. Uh, and again, you know that's something that could be certainly found out with, uh, with further investigation by the Russian authorities.
1: It's popularly believed that our evil is behind this recent rash of ransomware attacks. But my understanding is that the most recent attacks um, have not been attributed to them by the US intelligence community. Do you have any idea why?
3: Well, I think the intelligence community, as they always do, wants to be right. They want to make sure that they have what they call high confidence before pointing the finger. Uh, That doesn't mean it won't come. That doesn't mean it won't come soon. I think there's lots of indication and certainly lots of groups outside the U.S. government have pointed the finger there. Uh, But they want to be sure. You don't want to be wrong. You know, there's no it's a political issue whether you attribute another country, another group at the end of the day. There's no set quantum of evidence you need, but you also want to be right. And so I think they're taking their time to make sure they're right.
1: Are they also taking their time because to attribute it to our evil would put even more pressure on Biden to act? I don't think so. I think that, that,
3: that dynamic is already there. I mean, President Biden picked up the phone and talked to Vladimir Putin again just uh, the other day. You know? So he had his summit meeting where he sort of laid down what the US's expectations were with respect to this activity. And he reinforced that in the call he had just recently, where he talked about ransomware. He talked about the U.S. expectation that, that Russia and, and President Putin would do something about this. And also the point that if they don't do something about this, we're going to have to take matters into our own hands.
1: So President Biden made some of these points in Geneva when he met with Putin, and yet the attacks continued. Is it a thumb in the eye uh, by either the Russian government or our evil?
3: Well, it certainly doesn't show the progress that I think President Biden wanted to see. But at the same time, look, you know, we're in, you know, these are big countries. Uh, These groups have been acting with impunity for a long time. I think the tail of the tape will be, will President Putin take action now? You know, this is not going to be a light switch where suddenly everything is going to change and, and, you know, all cyber crime or all these ransomware activities will stop. It's going to be, it's going to take some time. You know, the ransomware task force that I helped uh, co-chair suggested a whole range of different actions we should take, including trying to get rid of these safe harbors, as we call them. That's going to take some time. But if we continue to see this activity and and we see Putin, if Putin throws up his hands and says, well, look, there's nothing I can do about it, that's unacceptable. And I think, uh, you know, uh, I don't, I think that likely the time frame has changed from what it originally was after Geneva, which was six months to a year, to something shorter than that, because we can't, The US can't afford to sit on its hands, particularly when there's major disruption or destruction destruction happening uh, like we have with the Colonial
1: Pipelines attack. President Biden said that the US will take any necessary action. What does that mean? Well, it's a full
3: range. and, And, you know, we have a lot of different capabilities in the government. I'd say we have not been the US government that good. And I think other governments around the world have not been that good at actually, reining in this kind of destructive conduct, whether it be by nation states or some of these these uh, criminal groups in safe havens. So, you know, for instance, after the election interference, I think you know we we did take some action, but you know, I think too little, too late. It certainly didn't deter you know Putin and the Russians from taking further action later on and, and trying to interfere with elections again. Which means we need to do things that are actually going to shape their behavior. So, if I look at it, there are two strands of activities. One if Putin's not cooperating now, what pressure can we bring on him to, to make it seem, make him understand this is in his interest? Putin will only act if it's either in his interest or he's avoiding a greater harm. So that well, means- what
1: kinds of actions would make him yeah. realize that sanctions haven't worked?
3: Well, our sanctions, have, in my view, our sanctions have not been either that targeted, strategic, or long-lasting. So you remember, for instance, that some of the sanctions were lifted Uh, in the last administration, like the one uh, one involving one of Putin's close uh, allies, Paska, for instance. That doesn't send really a very strong message. Uh, And in the last administration, of course, um, President Trump undercut the message uh, to Putin. It doesn't matter what the rest of the government does if the president of the United States keeps saying, well, I don't know if they actually did something. So now we have a leadership, a president who's saying absolutely clear, unambiguous message. And the kinds of sanctions I think might have more of an effect are ones that go after you know, his personal money flows, go after his uh, investments, his cronies' investments. Those are hard things to do, but that, that would be one area we could go. The other areas we could use uh, more, you know, all the other government tools we have. Now we've indicted some individuals before, that's only gonna have a limited effect, those criminal actions. There's other economic actions we can take that involve re- Russian energy or other issues. We can even potentially, use cyber tools uh, to um, disrupt these criminal groups ourselves much like uh, cyber command was reported to have done uh, against the internet research agency now you got to be very careful with that about that you don't want to escalate you don't want to start using those tools uh willy-nilly and there's you have got to be very careful but at the same time you need to be messaging to russia that we're going to do this and and here's the thing if we don't take action we pretty much set an expectation you know we want you to do this if they don't do it and we don't do anything that that puts us in a worse position and frankly these groups are going to op- operate even with more impunity
1: it is it analogous to president obama drawing the red line in the sand over syria
3: yeah i mean look i'm, I'm not a syrian expert but i think that was not very helpful i mean i think that if you say something that your adversaries and, and people on the fences on, who might be getting into this activity have to know you're serious and you're going to follow through. Every indication I have, though, is that this administration means to do exactly that.
1: So I've heard some people say, hit them where it really hurts. If they're going to tackle our infrastructure, our meatpacking plants, for example, then we should hit them the very same way. Yeah,
3: I have real problems with that because I get not—it's not just escalation, but there's something called international law, for instance, which uh, keeps the world safe more generally. So, you know, if you say, "Okay, they've gone after our colonial pipelines, now we're going to shut off the lights in Moscow," that would be completely disproportionate. It'd be affecting a civilian population in a way that doesn't make any sense. Uh, we can do things, I think, that hold them to to account uh, in ways that don't really go beyond that, that level. We, we've argued in the UN, in fact, the Russians and the Chinese have agreed in the UN setting to certain voluntary norms of behavior, including that you shouldn't attack the critical infrastructure of another country absent wartime. You know, wartime, there are rules, what's called international humanitarian law, et cetera. We shouldn't do that. The country shouldn't do that. There's an expectation that if malicious conduct is coming from your country, you should take actions to ameliorate that, to mitigate that using law enforcement or technical tools or others. So those expectations are there, we're trying to enforce them. But if we violate those same expectations in response to something that was done, I think that puts us in, in, in a bad place.
1: So uh, we've been talking about offensive actions the U.S. should take, but does this um, rash of attacks indicate that when it comes to defense, we have really not been in the game?
3: That's, that's a, sort of the sad thing. We've talked about computer security
1: for- For decades. Well,
3: as long as I can remember, 20, 20, 30 years. I mean, I've been involved in this area for about 30 years now. And we've talked about it that entire time. And yes, there's been progress, but we are clearly um, you know, very vulnerable. And this is seen again and again with all the different uh, attacks we've seen. Now, on the good side of that, we've been taking some steps to finally get beyond that. Um, but our industry still, you know, depending on what industry you're talking about, there's lots of holes there. Now, I don't expect... Then able will prevent the really sophisticated, what they call zero-day attacks, because that's hard for anyone to do. The government has to play a bigger role there. But a lot of these things are just based on low-hanging fruit, things they haven't patched. And so I think it's time to start thinking about not just incentives to get the private sector to do better, but also what we need to do in terms of setting minimum standards, particularly for critical infrastructure. I mean, it's critical for a reason. If it's not critical infrastructure, it means we can't afford to have it go down. So we need to start thinking about that too.
1: Why the heck haven't we done this?
3: Well, I mean, look, it's a long battle, right? The, it, the, the question has always been the government itself can't go in and fix everyone's infrastructure. This is really a responsibility for, for the, the private sector and others. And, and some are further ahead than others. The financial industry, I think, is quite far ahead. The, uh, generally, some of the um, uh, high-tech industry is pretty far ahead. But you get to manufacturing and food and others, and they haven't really embraced the, the, the cybersecurity, you know, and there's certainly exceptions, writ large as much as they, they should. So, so we have to change the dynamic. Now, the thing I'm hopeful about is, you know, even when we had that big rent, that big attack, which was state sponsored, which was espionage, the, the the solar winds attack back when the Biden administration started or the end of the Trump administration. Um, that got a lot of high-profile news, but the problem I've seen is you know, it becomes news for two days, and then people forget about it a week later. And that's because people don't understand this issue. But when you can't, when you have to wait in line for gas, or you're worried about getting food, that really brings it home. So I think now we're in a different place. I and mean, if you'd said to me even like a month before the Biden's trip to Europe, would cybersecurity be a main topic? I would have said oh, it'll be a topic, but not a main topic. It was a main topic in the G7, topic in the G7, it was a main topic at NATO, it was a main topic in the discussion with Putin. Uh, That's big and I think it's not going to disappear now and that helps us push through, get more congressional action, get
1: more government action, but also get more industry action. Do you think there's a risk that because ransomware has become such a high profile issue of the moment and because it exacts an economic price um, that we're not paying enough attention to other aspects of cybersecurity?
3: I, in some sense, I think a rising tide lifts all boats of this. I think if we're paying attention to this, which is more basically a criminal, but there could be nation states involved, uh, we're going to pay attention to to the rest of it too. We have been focusing a lot on nation state activity for good reason that we've been worried about. But I think this, you know, if we, if you have a good defense, that defense protects you, not just against ransomware but against other kinds of, uh, uh, of uh, malicious cyber activity. So I think it does help you across the board. The other thing is, you know, we're an administration now that pr- prioritize the idea of um, multilateral approaches, working with our friends and allies. And I think that's going to be important in going at this as well. And then, you know, I think finally, the kind of leader to leader dialogue that we've seen between Biden and Putin there can't be any misunderstanding about that, you know. Yes, if you, you convey it at a low level or even a secretary of state level, there's a way for that message to get lost. When the president is telling the president of the other country, this is important to us, this is a priority, that, that message is much more clear. And so, yeah, look, I worry, given what I've seen over the last 30 years, <laughs> that this will lapse back or we'll focus on one part of it, it'll be the flavor of the day, but I don't think so. And As I said, I was part of this ransomware task force. We made about 40 some recommendations. Some of them were on issues around deterrence and international issues. Some of them were better preparing companies uh, and the private sector and and municipal townships and others who were victims to know what to do and how to to, to react to this. One recommendation is that they would have to report if they're gonna pay ransomware. Right now they don't have to. That helps law enforcement and others get a handle on the problem. Uh, One of our international uh, recommendations was for countries who are providing safe havens, not because they want to, but because uh, they don't have the capabilities to give them more um, uh, training, so capacity building, and the countries that are doing it you know, willingly or turning a, a blind eye willingly, you know, those we have to kind of coerce into being more cooperative. So there's a whole range of things we need to do, and it's not, the biggest issue for me is this can't be the flash in the pan issue. There has to be a sustained effort over several years that's hard for us to do, as you know. We don't do anything that well. <laughs> we've been talking about several years. But, again, I'm hopeful. I think that we're getting the right signals out of the administration, the White House, and that's exactly what they plan to do.
1: As you well know, for decades, there has been criticism that the U.S. government hasn't been organized uh, to deal with this issue and that it hasn't had the right personnel to deal with this issue. Um, is that still the case?
3: I think we've seen a real turnaround there. So, you know, at the White House, uh, the issue has been elevated the National Security uh, Council to be a deputy national security advisor and sort of inside the White House, that's a big deal. That's a high level position. And Ann Neuberger, who is the person who holds that job, is longtime experienced in this area, a really dedicated, very, uh, very strong person uh, fighting this. Then you go to uh, the new national uh, cyber director, which was mandated by Congress, Chris Inglis. Chris Inglis, you know i've known for many years and is really one of the smartest people i've ever known in my life and then you know him having him being involved in this battle is i think incredibly important ali Miorkis over at dhs um you know i was a prosecutor together with him in la many years ago and he he really cares about this and has been leading on this uh you go to lisa monaco over at doj as a deputy there tony blinken and wendy sherman at state both whom i work with closely uh, really care about this. And then you have a um, Jake Sullivan who actually who does know about this too. So for the first time, you don't have to spoon food, uh, feed people. They know this, they dealt with it in the last administration. They dealt with Chinese theft of intellectual property and other issues. And so they get it. And so that's a big difference. And you know, I think they're appointing new people too. My old office at the state department, which was sort of um, downgraded during the last administration uh, they're, they're involved in a review now to, to elevate it again and to structure it in a way that it can be most effective. So they're getting the right people in, they're providing the resources. Oh, and I, I should, of course I should mention at DHS, um, uh, that you know, the, also the, the, the CISA, uh, the Cyber and Information Security Agency and, uh, uh, and Jen Easterly, who has not yet been, at least the last time I checked has not yet been confirmed, but hopefully that will happen soon. So you you got a pretty good team in there, pretty strong team, uh, which is important because people do make a difference.
1: It's a big team. It's a sprawling team. Does that make it less effective?
3: Well, you always worry, look, you know, uh, stovepiping in our government is a way of doing business, unfortunately. Um, We did a lot of work in this area to try to bring folks together during the Obama administration uh, and over even, even during the Trump administration. And I think that what you'll see here is with Anne, and Chris, the White House's role should really be the orchestra conductor to bring together the folks who are at the military, the DHS, DOJ, Commerce, um, uh, Treasury, State, you need someone to make sure they're all playing and working together and pulling in the same direction. And I have confidence that that will happen. I I understand, for instance, there's been many more meetings at the White House at a very high level, deputies, principals level, um, than certainly there was in the last administration. And so. That kind of coordination is critical to the White House, and that kind of leadership is critical, and and that all starts with the president. I mean, the president, you know, talks about this issue quite a bit, and that makes a difference. And so, uh, so I think that, um, I think we're seeing it. It's not an easy job. Look, getting you know, wrangling the interagency, who all have great capabilities of their own, is is difficult, but they all really want to work in this area. They all want to pull in the right direction, and so I think you have this. Matching of willingness with now folks who can make it happen.
1: What about the intelligence agencies? Um, do they have the staff they need? Um, do they have the right direction too? Hard to tell. I think
3: I think they've been focused on this issue for quite some time. Certainly, the NSA and CIA both have, and the DNI have. You know, Avril Haines is the head of the DNI now, and she's dealt with these issues as I said before. So, so I can't assess their their person power level. Uh, but it's an issue they've been focusing on for some time. So, so you know, I don't I don't have qualms about their capabilities in this area. Uh, I just don't know how I can't speak to their funding, uh, but, but I don't have qualms about their capabilities.
1: Look, future to me, what do you think is going to happen in the next six months to a year?
3: Well, I think, first of all, the the tail of the tape will happen, right? We'll see if, if Putin actually does crack down on these things or not. Uh, and we'll see if there's actually some, uh, you know, uh, and, and we'll see then we'll have to respond if he doesn't, we'll see what that response will be and we'll see what the effect of that will be. Um, but I also think you're not going to be seeing the US sitting still, I think there's going to be a lot of activity with our, our partners, you, like I said you had statements come out of the G7 meeting, and the NATO meeting I think that's going to move forward. Um, I think you'll see more executive orders and actions coming out of the White House in terms of, uh, of trying to bolster our cybersecurity. As you said, you know, one of the greatest things of the executive order they already issued was saying that when the federal government buys software and buys products, that they're going to now be very clear on what standards they have to meet. And what that means is that you know manufacturers are not going to just make a product for the government another one for everyone else. That's going to raise the standard, So that will have a big effect in my view. But they'll, they'll look at other things they need to do as well, which I think will be good. You see a maturing of all the different agency capabilities, including over at CHS, which will continue to look at that. So that will be, I think, very helpful. Um, you'll see more activity out of my old shop, where, where whatever it's going to be called next in state. So you'll see more diplomatic activity. That didn't stop, I have to say, during the last administration. A big part of that was something that was called the deterrence initiative, which is to try to get other countries to work with us uh, to do things like you know what's the you know what kinds of activities we'll take when we see uh, nation states uh, uh, not obeying the rules and doing malicious conduct. So they built, I think, some good partnerships. Then I think that will be expanded. So so you know with all of that, this is not going to be an easy ride. As I said in the beginning. Uh, This really does require a sustained effort. It's not a push a button and everything, you know, a light switch. People use as the analogy. It's not a light switch. Um, It's maybe a dimmer switch, which slowly (laughs) goes on. It just takes it takes time to make an impact. Um, And then I think the last thing you'll see is you'll see activity by Congress. You know, we we've talked about a data breach reporting law in the U.S. now at a national level for twenty years, literally twenty years. I remember that's the first time I started dealing with it. I think we'll finally get something like that now. I think you'll get more emphasis from Congress on both funding, what we need in the government and how we work with industry. So, so I, I you know, I'm hopeful and I'm a cyber person, so maybe I'm overly hopeful. I've certainly been disappointed in the past, but uh, I think that now we're gonna have that kind of turning point we've been looking for for so long. That
1: was Chris Painter, president of the board of the Global Forum on Cyber Expertise Foundation. He says, by the way, not to overestimate the importance of our evil going offline, significantly reducing ransomware attacks is going to require a sustained effort over many years. He says it is just too attractive a way to make a lot of money. Remember, subscribe to Spy Talk on Substack and stay with us. Jeff Stein talks to James Olson, a former top CIA official about China and a whole lot more.
2: James Olson is a spy catcher. He was so good at it, the CIA made him head of counterintelligence. He's now a professor at the Bush School of Government and Public Service of Texas A&M University and a prolific writer. He recognizes that espionage and especially counterintelligence can be a dirty game. So his previous book is a kind of spiritual guide to the spy trade. He called it fair play, the moral dilemmas of spying. More recently, Olson has been raising alarms that the US has been losing ground to Russia and especially to China. He's written a new book about his concerns. It's called To Catch a Spy, The Art of Counterintelligence. In this week's interview with Jeff Stein, Olson says China is flooding the United States with its intelligence resources, especially in universities and in industry. He urges US intelligence to resurrect the use of double agent operations, the art of planting false defectors in the heart of the enemy's spy services. Here's Jeff. James Olson, welcome to
4: Spy Talk. It's an honor to have you here.
0: Thank you, Jeff. It's a real pleasure to be with you today.
4: Outside of close students of maybe John le Carre, I don't think people really understand what counterintelligence is. It has all sorts of facets. The legendary James Jesus Angleton, who in the end ended up paranoid about the Russians, compared it famously to luring a brook trout from the shadows. What do you say?
0: Well, I uh, certainly think that uh, James Jesus Angleton uh, had some insights, but he certainly lost touch with reality over time. I would define counterintelligence as the subset of intelligence that is responsible for protecting our secrets and technologies and our databases from the efforts of foreign intelligence services to steal them. And that's a big problem.
4: Yeah. You know, uh, I did an interview for the last uh, Spy Talk podcast in which Nick F. Miades, an expert on Chinese espionage, painted a very grim portrait of. Uh, Chinese espionage uh, assault on us, said the FBI is
0: overwhelmed. Do you agree with that? I agree with that, absolutely. I think uh, Nick gets it right. I'm not sure I would agree with his numbers. I think that they are possibly exaggerated, but the premise that Nick presents is certainly one I agree with. We are being overwhelmed. The entire US counterintelligence community, including the FBI and the CI are not up to the task We're being bombarded from several different directions by Chinese intelligence services. It's massive. It's pervasive. It's unlike anything we've ever seen before.
4: An intelligence professional commented on that interview I did, uh, saying that counterintelligence types always overinflate the threat. What What do you say to that?
0: I don't agree with that. Uh, the threat is not overinflated it's very very real we are desperately trying to stop the flow of technology to the chinese you know we look at every chinese weapon system that we can examine and in every case it's based on stolen american military grade technology and they are not only going after the traditional espionage targets, political and military intelligence. They're going after anything that will enhance their capabilities. And that means they go after industrial processes, after agriculture, after medicine, after scientific research. Their appetites are voracious and they are flooding our country with intelligence resources, personnel, whose job it is to steal all of that. The universities are a major venue for counterintelligence. I don't think most people realize that, but that's where a lot of the action is taking place. They're getting into our high-tech programs through the universities, and then by extension from universities into our high-tech corporate sector.
4: You compare Russian and Chinese uh, intelligence efforts here.
0: The Chinese are in a class by themselves. The Russians haven't gone away but the magnitude of what the Chinese are doing now is several levels greater than anything the Russians ever did. Why why is that, Jim? They made a decision very early on, Jeff, that they wanted to catch up with the United States, technologically, militarily, economically. And they made the decision that the fastest and cheapest way to do that is espionage espionage stealing our technology is a lot faster than doing their own R&D.
4: But the Russians uh, infiltrated the Manhattan Project and stole our nuclear bomb secrets. Uh, they certainly have had a longtime interest in our technology for their own industrial base. What makes the Chinese different from the Russians?
0: The Chinese are different in that they are throwing unprecedented resources into this task. Uh, They're different also in that they have access to our high-tech sector through business deals, often legitimate, but sometimes uh, distorted into improper relationships. They have the capability of sending so many students into our country, infiltrating them into our engineering departments and encouraging some of them to stay here getting green cards, eventually citizenship, getting sponsorship by American corporations. So they have a ready-made core of potentially willing subjects, citizens, or former citizens to do their bidding. And they are very, very successful at it. Uh, Part of
4: counterintelligence is, I'm sorry, excuse me. Part part of counterintelligence is infiltrating the adversary's spy service. Finding our own moles inside Chinese or Russian intelligence and having them work for us. Could you give me an idea of how good we are at that?
0: We've been pretty good at it over the years. We've had some historic penetration, some of which I was involved in during my work against the Russian target and my service in Moscow. From 1975 to 1985, we built up this amazing inventory of assets. Inside Russia, we had penetrations, sometimes multiple penetrations of every organization we cared about, KGB, GRU, Defense Ministry, Ministry of Foreign Affairs. As you know, Jeff, that tragically came all crashing down in the single year of 1985 when we were wiped out mm-hmm. because of treachery from within. Rick Ames, number one, but also Bob Hansen, also to some extent Edward Lee Howard, it was devastating. It's the worst year of my life, 1985, because that was the year that uh, they, they wiped us out.
4: The Chinese have wiped out some of our spies in recent years, according to uh, news stories and uh, uh, court cases against uh, former CIA officers who turned bad. Uh, is that an equivalent to what happened in the 1980s with the Russians?
0: It's comparable. I don't think the numbers are as great. I think Rick Ames probably betrayed some 30 of our Russian agents, courageous Russians who were working secretly with us. What Jerry Chun-Ching Lee and Ron Hanson and others did was bad. I believe that Lee was responsible for the arrests and probable executions of some 10 or 12, maybe even more of our penetrations of the Chinese government. I think that's shameful. I think it's despicable, um, but it's not really at the same level we saw against the Russians. But the whole concept of having a traitor within who gives up the identities of our spies is, uh, is very similar. Of
4: course, it depends uh, whose ox is being gored, you might say, uh, if we uh, penetrate Chinese intelligence or the government, and we turn somebody into a traitor, uh, we consider that a big success, he's a hero to us. But uh, when they turn one of our people, they're uh, rotten, evil, bad guys, right?
0: Well, yeah, that's true. It depends on where you're sitting, but I would argue that the moral equivalency argument is misplaced. You know, I'm an American, but even trying to look at it as objectively as I can, it seems to me that betraying the totalitarian Stalinist regimes, either in Russia or now in China, is uh, not on a par with bet- betraying the, the democratic values of the United States of America. That's very chauvinistic, I know. And you can certainly make the case that betrayal is betrayal, but I think there's a case to be made What it is you're betraying.
4: You're, you, you remind me of, uh, of a story that a former head of the CIA's intelligence wing, and this is going back 20 years now, he said to me, he had a long dinner with a one of you, uh, a counterintelligence type, and he listened to the whole story of what they were doing and how they did it. And he said to uh, the counterintelligence chief, you guys just carry out each other's garbage.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I understand that argument, uh,
2: but no, I don't really
0: buy it. I think that there is a distinction to be made. Uh, you know, I think also, when you look at the Americans who betrayed us, Jeff, in almost every case, it was for money, it was crass, it was venal. Mm -hmm. There were no ideological motivations there. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is kind of a lower form of human life than someone like many of the Russians I worked with who cooperated with us because they identified with American values. Or they wanted to strike back what they knew was an oppressive, totalitarian, cruel, evil regime. And I admired those people. I had some Russians who worked for me who refused categorically to accept accept any money from us. Mm -hmm. Because in their mind, that would tarnish the purity of their motives. Those people for me were were heroes. It's very hard to find American traders in that same vein. You mentioned the atomic spies of World War II many, many years ago, but they also were ideological. They were communists or certainly fellow travelers to one extent or another. Now you take somebody like the Rosenbergs and I will grudgingly give them some respect because they served and died for what they believed in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But Rick Ames, Edward Lee Howard, Bob Hansen, others, Mm-hmm. Certainly, we're in that category. They sold us out for, uh, for money. Mm-hmm. And that, that makes them, I think, uh, particularly contemptible.
4: Yeah, it takes me back to my own uh, short period as a case officer with the military in Vietnam. Uh, we had a, a Viet Cong defector come in. Uh, and he was defecting because he had come to hate communists uh, right. and the ideology and the structure of the military that he was in, and uh, we persuaded him to go back to his unit and report to us, and he did, and I was just amazed. Uh, I mean, at that point in the war, I thought we were clearly losing and on our way out, and here was a guy who was going to uh, risk his life for us to report on what was going on inside the North Vietnamese Army, Uh, and it is a truism that they spy for us On the basis of ideology not that they don't have other weaknesses um, which makes them exploitable but our guys sell out for the dough every time
0: well i'm glad you brought that up jeff because that's when i first became acquainted with you and your work uh your excellent book on uh, that spy case in vietnam which i Mm -hmm. thought was a a magnificent contribution to literature so thank you for that thank you for for all your subsequent work in this field Uh, you're someone i follow very closely
4: well, thanks. Uh, I really appreciate that, especially coming from you. Let's just talk briefly about other uh, counterintelligence challenges. Iran, how good are they? And do they target as much? They've done some cyber probes and attacks.
0: Yeah, the Iranians aren't bad. The uh, IRGC and the, uh, the VVAC, are, they're competent services, but we don't see them really having much success against the American target. You had that DIA defector who went to the Iranians and that was Mm -hmm. unfortunate. But I'm not aware of any extensive penetrations by the Iranians. I'm not even aware of any extensive intelligence presence in the United States that we're particularly worried about. I don't want to underestimate them. Uh, They certainly hate us. They would love to harm us in any way they can, including through espionage and covert action. But I don't think that they're even in the same conversation with the Chinese first, the Russians second, and I put the Cubans third as a threat to uh, US intelligence. Well,
4: I'd like, I'd like to talk about that. I mean, Cuba seems to have faded from our national posture uh, towards our adversaries. Um, Fidel Castro is gone, his brother is wobbling, um, is a failed state economically. So why uh, do the Cubans pose any kind of threat to us now?
0: They pose a threat to us now because the Cuban DI has never lowered its attack on the United States. Now, Diaz Canal is just as much a communist as the Castro brothers ever were, just as hateful toward the United States. And we know that they are still very involved in espionage in the United States. You know, the Montes case was that long ago.
4: But their tar- isn't their target basically Florida-Cuban exiles who uh, are always trying to stir up some trouble against Cuba? Isn't that their main target?
0: Well, that gives them inroads there, and they're very concerned about the Miami Cubans and what they might be plotting against the mainland of Cuba. But no, look at the, the Myers case, Gwendolyn and Kendall Myers. They were Washington, D.C.-based. Look at Anna Montes, right at the heart of DIA working against us and funneling everything she can get her hands on to Cuba. So they are a national uh, program. And, you know, this is true of espionage in general. You know, what we don't know is hurting us. But I can guarantee you that the cases of Cuban espionage espionage the United States that we're aware of are probably only a small part of the total. Mm-hmm. Just go down to south, go down to south of Florida and tune in on the shortwave band and uh, you'll hear the sultry female Cuban voice reading off numbers. Mm -hmm. They're not just doing that for fun. They're communicating with their agents all Mm -hmm. through uh, South Florida and elsewhere. Anna Montez up in Washington, listens to those broadcasts. So there's a lot of activity going on there. So do not underestimate the Cubans.
4: That's a technology you know, that goes way back through uh, way back, World War II.
0: It's tried and true. It works. You know, All major services use it. These number stations are fascinating. Mm-hmm. We and, used it too. I think uh, one of the codes that
4: we used to set off the Bay of Pigs invasion was the fish is red or something like that over the radio, right? Yeah. Now, let's, move on. Just, sure. <laughs> let's move on to the cyber realm for a minute. So a lot of the... Uh, Penetration that we've been experiencing comes from cyber. Uh, How does counterintelligence work in the cyber realm?
0: Not hard enough. We're not doing nearly enough. You talk about uh, being overwhelmed, as Zephti pointed out in that uh, interview you did with him. Uh, That's certainly true. The Chinese, number one, have these, what they call, information warfare stations, mostly run by the PLA all around china and their task is to hack into american databases government databases corporate databases university databases any research institute it Mm -hmm. is a well-funded very sophisticated and unfortunately, very successful campaign that they're running. It right. the seems team.
4: like it seems like every day we wake up to another headline about another massive Chinese or Russian penetration. So I have to say that counterintelligence has fallen down on the job in terms of stopping these penetrations. How do we I would fix agree.
0: That? I would agree. I think it's unacceptable that our cyber defenses are not more sophisticated and more effective than they are. How's the, how reasons. do you fix that? giving it more priority, getting bright young people to go into uh, cyber work. Uh, We're not throwing enough resources into it. There's no excuse for our our not being better.
4: Well, what's what's the problem there? Is the uh, CIA not getting enough money to recruit people? I mean, that's normally a root of problems.
0: It's across the board. The intelligence community, I believe, is understaffed, under-resourced. I think we need more. I don't think we fully recognize the enormity of this threat from China alone. So, yeah, well, we need we need help from Congress. We need support of the American people. We need uh, better people, frankly, to come into this important counterintelligence work.
4: Of course, there's not a government agency I've ever heard of that doesn't want more money and more manpower. <laughs> but let's say you're not going to get any more. I mean, we do have some immense budget stresses right now uh because of the pandemic uh so let's say you're not going to get any more money uh what at cia would you be doing differently if you were still there
0: i'd love to be there and i tell you what i would be doing i would be going on the offense i think counterintelligence across the board the united states government has become too passive too defensive just kind of building fences and uh Barriers, uh, give us an
4: idea of what that means to go on the offensive and counterintelligence in the cyber realm.
0: My first commandment of counterintelligence in my book is be offensive. And when I talk about offensive counterintelligence, Jeff, I'm talking primarily about two things. The first thing I'm talking about is penetration. I tell my students that the best counterintelligence is penetration. For every American trader we have out there, there are members of that foreign intelligence service, which is sponsoring that espionage, who knows the identity of these people. And our job in intelligence should be to find those people and to recruit them. And I would just really go after them hard. I would be obnoxious. I would be in their face. I would be advertising that there are there's big money to be made. If you know the identity of American spy, you're a foreign intelligence officer, and you come forward, it's going to be a payday that you can't even begin to imagine. But There's
4: I've a- been told by other uh, sources that we, in fact, do have a very aggressive uh, effort in the cyber realm, fishing for uh, possible recruits that were really throwing a lot at them through cyber. Yes, I agree with that. Cyber-
0: Cyber is an avenue. The Chinese certainly use that against us. They're all over the social media. We don't have that same benefit going after Chinese or Russian spies. Those are closed societies. Our capabilities of following up on those days uh, are much more limited. But there are ways, there are Chinese intelligence officers who are accessible to us outside the country. Go get them. Hit them hard. You know, Cold pitch them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you may not have... Uh, a high level of success, but you'll get some. Sure. If you have have deep enough pockets, there are people out there who will make a deal with us. So what's the the problem? So what's the
4: problem? Is it we just don't have enough uh, manpower or person power uh, uh, approaching uh, Chinese officials in Zambia or wherever? uh, Or uh, is is the CIA, as has been said a lot in recent years, it's overcautious. It's a yeah. uh, oh, it's afraid to make mistakes. Yeah,
0: I think there's some of that. I think that our aggressiveness uh, needs to be upgraded. I think we need to be a lot pushier. Um, I think we're a little bit restraining ourselves in going after them. We may feel diplomatic incidents if we pitch somebody who has diplomatic status so we're so, uh,
4: afraid of getting caught, is that it? That if we uh, a CIA officer makes a pitch to a Chinese diplomat, uh, that will be caught and that'll be a diplomatic incident, is that what you're saying?
0: It could be, it could be. The State Department is a little bit reluctant to see us going out willy-nilly, pitching people right and left. But one way or the other, I call it hanging out the shingle. We need to get the word out that we're open for business and we have deep pockets. We've got to penetrate more intelligence services. As you know, Jeff, it is a rare case that we have caught a spy where we didn't have a source. Sure. Something inside that service. Okay, sure. so that's number one. And number two, double agent operations. I would like to see a resurrection of double agent operations. I love them. The benefits from them are just incredible. And I believe that that is a, an art form that has fallen into unfortunate uh, neglect. Mm-hmm. We need to be a lot more aggressive in double agent operations mm-hmm. across the board. When I was in active duty, when I was running counterintelligence at the CIA, we had a double agent committee chaired by the FBI. All of the intelligence community was there. It was kind of a brainstorming session. We'd get together regularly, say, okay, where do we need a new double agent operation? Which should our double agent candidate look like? Mm-hmm. Where does that person reside? Is that person a military officer? Is that person a scientist in an university? Is that person working for Boeing on aviation pro- uh, projects? And then find those double agent candidates, dress them up, dangle them and off and running. Uh, double agent operations have multiple benefits. I devoted a couple chapters to them in my book and I love them because the benefits just are, uh, Unending Uh, and we need to do a lot more of those. There was a period when we were a lot more aggressive a lot more successful
4: Uh, Of course that was during the Cold War uh, And that was the terrain of John le Carré Who who, drew portraits of people going crazy uh, In the uh, wilderness of mirrors as it was called. Yeah, so probably James Jesus Angleton wasn't the only one who lost his sense of (laughs) lost touch with reality while looking for ghosts everywhere inside the woodwork
0: well as you you may know jeff uh, one of my ten commandments of counterintelligence is don't stay too long (laughs) because the truth is i know from experience that a steady diet of counterintelligence a steady diet of conspiracy and manipulation uh, deception can be harmful to your mental health (laughs) most striking examples of course are angleton and even J. Edgar Hoover over at the Bureau, they both stayed too long. They both kind of went off the deep end. And in the process, they really discredited counterintelligence and I think prevented uh, some of the best people from going into that field. And that's unfortunate. Yeah, don't stay too long because counterintelligence is a murky world. You end up seeing conspiracies everywhere. We've all seen it. All of us who were did that?
4: I have to ask you, did that happen to you?
0: Uh, I think I'm okay but you know Uh, you have to tell me but it was my wife
4: maybe we need another source
0: (laughs) my wife Meredith who was also in the CI and knew what counterintelligence could do to people when I was out in Vienna as chief of station and received the cable from the director asking me to come back and do counterintelligence Meredith and I took a walk around Vienna that night so we could talk openly and she said okay Jim I know your heart's in it. If you really want to do this counterintelligence job, fine. But don't stay too long because she didn't want her husband going weird on her. Uh, I think I got out in time, Jeff, but uh, you know the verdict's still out. Well, we'll see. Uh,
4: Well, as long as there's spies, there's going to be counter spies. Yeah. as long as they are spies and counter spies we'll be uh talking about it on the spy talk podcast yeah. so thank you so much james Olson, for coming aboard we're honored
2: to have you today thank you
0: thank you very much Ed. very much jeff keep up the good work get thank the word
2: out there you. thank you really appreciate that james Olson is the former head of cia counterintelligence and author most recently of to catch a spy the art of counterintelligence as jeff says there will always be spies and counter spies. And that's what Spy Talk is all about.
1: And thanks for joining us for Spy Talk, John. A special thanks to you for filling in this week. Remember, you can subscribe to Spy Talk on Substack. We hope you will. And we also hope you will join us again next week for another episode of the Spy Talk podcast. I'm Gene Meserve.
2: And I'm John Dingus, sitting in for Jeff Stein.
1: For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.